Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first time visiting, or maybe second or third, or kind of newish to our church, thanks for coming back. Glad you are here. We are in Acts right now as a church, uh, preaching through this whole book, and we will be throughout 2019, so still kind of towards the beginning. We're in Acts 12 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or phone apps, Acts 12, 1 to 19, but this will all be on screen. The key part, uh, the part I want to focus on most is in the sermon inserts you got when you walked in in that, in that worship folder, so turn there too if you would like, if you want to kind of follow along there, that'd be great. Uh, but Acts is, uh, it's been a great book, it's been a great ride so far, hope you've been enjoying it. If you've been here, uh, we are in um, kind of the middle parts now, we're looking at the, some of the key moments of expansion for the church outside of the Judean province or outside of Jerusalem, so we'll keep reading today kind of along those lines. Acts, if you're brand new to it, is uh, the, the reason it's called Acts is because it's about the Acts of Jesus Christ post-resurrection and post-ascension. So kind of historically and theologically where we are timeline-wise is Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended, spent 40 days uh, meeting with people, eating with them, sharing his life with them and talking about the kingdom of God. And then he ascended and sent the Holy Spirit after that at Pentecost to fill the, the hearts of the church and to sort of birth the church essentially into existence. And so been talking a lot about that theologically, how the church exists, we exist as Christians because of God's will, because he wants us to. He wants churches to exist. He moves towards us. He softens our hearts. He intends for us to have faith and to believe, and that'll come up today as well. But he is the actor, the, the ultimate protagonist, the hero of the book. And so some of your Bibles might say the acts of the apostles or the acts of kind of the first church leaders. Uh, as kind of a subtitle or whatever in, in your translations. And that's kind of true, of course, because that's a part of it. We, we as leaders in the church or just as Christians, wherever we're at in the church, leader or not, we are uh, filled with the Spirit and kind of act as well as we spread the gospel into uh, other Christians' hearts and minds and bodies and uh, people who don't know Christ yet. That's a part of who we are as, as a people. That's a part of who the church was originally, is they, they were meant to meet together and to nourish one another spiritually, but also have an outward bent to them as well in bringing the gospel to more people who haven't heard to save them from their sins as well. So the church has been born at this point. There's, there's a lot more to say that we just don't have time for that, but the church has essentially been born. The gospel is spreading now to non-Jewish people for the first time, but persecution is on the uptick as well. And so we saw that last week too. We'll see it uh, today as well, and, and Peter mentioned that. James is the first uh, apostolic martyr, so the first of Jesus' disciples to lose his life. And so we'll see that today, kind of in short. And then uh, Peter is put on death row, basically, uh, as well, but he's, uh, he is, um, he's escaped. He, he is uh, set free by uh, God's angel, and so we'll, we'll see that story as well, too. So that's basically what we're going to look at today. James is killed. Peter's imprisoned again. He's been in prison before, um, but he, he escapes. And so kind of through that, remember we're reading theological history. If you're brand new to this, uh, all this stuff, this is not just history, this is theology. So we're reading history here, but we're also seeing who is God and what is the gospel and who is Jesus Christ as we read. So God wrote this. He intended it to be written in a certain manner to tell us about him. And so uh, have that kind of those, those dual lenses in mind as we read. This, actually, this stuff actually happened, but as it goes and as, as it's being written down, God is telling us a ton about his plan of salvation, who we are in light of that, and about his character as well. So kind of have those questions in mind as we, <clears throat> as we read here from Acts 12. So let's go and read Acts 12, 1 to 19, and we'll come back and read, or come back and unpack this in two kind of big sections. I'll get to that. So Acts 12, 1 to start. 
About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's just his angel. But Peter came, continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. All right, so two big angles today. Uh, in, in fact, if you want to follow along a little more closely in that sermon insert, uh, two big angles, you can look ahead. We're looking at this from uh, what I'm going to call a human side and then a divine side. So uh, the human side simply means uh, Peter as a picture of us, and then we'll look at how Peter here resembles Christ, and the circumstances surrounding his escape resemble uh, Christ uh, as well in just a little bit here. So, but first, the human side. So uh, human, the human side meaning Peter, and we'll also say, say James to begin, but Peter uh, is a picture of us. So Christians, but you could also say kind of human beings as well, but, but Peter is a picture of, of Christians. So let's start with Peter and James, two of Jesus' inner ring disciples. So Jesus had 12 disciples. He had three spent a lot more time with than the other nine. And so those were Peter and James and John. So Peter and James here are two of Jesus' inner ring disciples. Here, James is killed by Herod, by the sword, presumably uh, by way of beheading. Uh, But then uh, Peter uh, Peter is escaped. And so Herod, actually here, the Herod, if you're kind of following along with all the Herods in the Bible, this is Agrippa I. There's like four of them, so it's really kind of confusing. This is not the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was two years old, and it's not the same Herod that, tried, that basically did kill Jesus uh, at his trial with Pilate's help uh, at Jesus' crucifixion. This is not another Herod, and there's a fourth as well coming up. So anyway, this is Herod Agrippa the, the first, 
uh, who kills James and then also imprisons Peter when he realizes, wow, this is making people happy and this is what I'm supposed to do is kind of keep the peace for the sake of the Romans. And so I'm going to keep uh, doing this by, by um, persecuting and killing these, uh, these Christians. So Peter's imprisoned, put on death row, but then essentially escapes with the help of, of the angel. More on that later, but here basically what we see from a really big kind of 30,000 foot bird's eye view is this strong contrast between the two, right? Between James and Peter. James dies, Peter lives. Both are Christians, both knew Jesus really well, and both had different destinies as believers, but both under the sovereign, caring hands of, of God. And so a couple things here to learn. There's a lot more to say about this, but a couple of things. From what we see about James kind of heading on this road of suffering, Peter heading down this road of comfort or of experiencing God's power and being saved from death, but James, again, not being spared it. A couple of things, they, they relate, but this is, this is where we start. Kind of the entry point to this theologically is God's purposes in our life and our death can be seen in Christ's, whose life and whose death and whose resurrection were all used by God for good. So the, the idea here is that it's not just Peter's escape that might make us thank God and see God's power and might make us say, God's really involved in that because look at how he helped Peter escape from death and how he intervened and did something only God can do. But to see God in comfort alone, that's not what we say. We, we do say that. We see God was obviously involved in that. But we also look at James's death and say, that can actually image Jesus' death as well and bring about great good. And actually, if you look at the circumstances surrounding James's death, it sounds a lot like Jesus's. He suffered under the hand of a Herod as well. And like James's death pleased the Jews, so did Jesus's death please the Jews. And so James and Peter, as children of Jesus, as in the image of Christ, as Holy Spirit of God, Jesus's spirit-filled people, the body of Jesus on earth, disciples, Christians like us, relive out Jesus's experiences. And death and comfort can both uh, tell that same gospel story. The second thing, building off of that is, don't compare your calling in life to another Christian's. So speaking to those of you who are Christians now for a minute, specifically, don't compare your calling in life to another Christian friend's, or maybe a Christian you don't know, but you just hear about. Their life might not be God's design for yours. John 21 is really helpful here. It's at the end of, of the book, at the end of the Gospel of John anyway, and after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is kind of talking about some of his disciples' futures. And Peter's future comes up, and it's kind of alluded to that he'll be crucified as well someday. And then Peter kind of pulls Jesus aside and says, Lord, what about John? What about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus' response is, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And so what this says is suffering and comfort are both legitimate expressions of true Christian spirituality. And so I want us to remember that, or if you don't know that, hear that for the first time. We see it in James and Peter, where we see it here in Jesus' words. Suffering and comfort are both legitimate expressions of true Christian spirituality. And most of us will have both a lot, right, in life. But I mean, on big picture levels, in terms of like maybe how our life ends, or when we die, do we die young or, or do we die old? Suffering and comfort are both legitimate expressions of, of true Christian spirituality. James here is not being punished 
He's not dying before Peter because he lived some less moral life. The point to their lives and the point to their deaths, whenever they happen, is Christ. And the point is Christ's sovereign care over both. I love how Jesus words this when he says, if I want him to remain alive, then he will. Think about those words for your life as well, and I should for my own. If Jesus wants you to live to be 110, then you will. If he doesn't, then you won't. But it's he who commands your destiny. Not the devil, not some other angel, not luck, not you. Nothing. Isn't that an encouraging thought? Whatever happens to you, Christ is over all. And he commands our destinies. He commands our futures. So whatever happens, no matter how old we live, no matter what happens in our lives, how much comfort we have, how much suffering, uh, Christ is in all and he intends all and his sovereign caring hand is over both. Because we're saved by grace. We don't deserve anything. And so we have Christ whether we live long or whether we die young. That's the first piece. The big thing here, though, moving on, is what happens to Peter. All right, so let's kind of go into that now. Again, still on the human level, so looking at Peter through the lens of he's a picture of us. Peter is literally experiencing redemption here, right? He's on death row. God saved him from certain death. He's basically about to die. And God intervenes, interrupts the plans of Herod and the Jews, and he saves him from certain death. So straight-up gospel imagery. This is what happens to a Christian or a person who's not a Christian yet when they believe the gospel is they're saved from certain death. And, and maybe you noticed it, but the fact that all of this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that an angel invited Peter to get up quickly and get dressed and put on sandals. I mean, why quickly? It's kind of like, is the angel's power kind of running low? Are the batteries low here? Or is God somehow limited? Like, you have to go fast before these very strong guards get up because I'm not in control of them either. I mean, obviously, he can do whatever he wants. And so why the speed? Why quickly? And why the mention of putting on sandals and getting dressed? Does all of that remind you of anything else in the Bible? We've seen this before in Acts a lot, but it's actually very explicit Exodus imagery from the Old Testament. Luke's not shy about it. The same thing happened to Israel in the Old Testament when they exodus out of being enslaved to the Egyptians. They were saved quickly from death. This is the whole point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, actually. When you look at when this is happening, why it's happening here, this is a big deal in the Bible, if you're new to this, is that the, the circumstances, the, uh, the dates, the times, all of that is important symbolically. And so Jesus died on Passover for a certain reason, similar reason here, actually, we'll talk about that. But the, the whens are really important theologically for God, for the biblical authors, and should be for us as well. So the fact that this happened on un, unleavened bread, which is linked with Passover, and the mention of speed, all this was the same for Israel in the Old Testament. It's the whole point of unleavened bread. God instituted this feast of unleavened bread to be kept in commemoration of the Exodus, to show that it was with speed that God saved people. It was with quickness that God saved people. And so much speed that Israel didn't have time to leaven their bread. Okay, that's the whole idea. God saved Israel so quickly that, and, and with, with such instantaneous effect 
that they didn't have time to leaven their bread. And so every year, Israel ate unleavened bread to remember that, oh yeah, remember when God saved us or when God saved our grandparents or great-grandparents or forefathers? It was with speed that he did it. If they ate leavened bread, the opposite message would be, sent, would be basically uh, you know, shared or suggested. The getting dressed imagery also meant something Israel was called to do on the eve of their escape is quickly take your staff, quickly tighten your belt, quickly get your sandals on because God is getting ready to escape you or exodus you out of Egyptian, Egyptian slavery. So all of this means then for us. So as we draw a line from that kind of into the New Testament now where Peter is experiencing the same kind of thing symbolically, and we look backwards a bit and see that line goes right through Christ. He is the exoduser of the church. He's the one who escapes us, not from Egyptian slavery, but from sin and death. When we kind of connect all of these dots together for us theologically and pragmatically, what this means is Jesus came to save us from sin and death with speed in an unleavened manner. There is an immediacy to it. Salvation is instantaneous for us. It happens past tense through Jesus' death and our choice to put our faith in him. It's an instantaneous thing that has lifelong consequence and growth patterns, of course, but it happens with, with quickness and speed, just like it did for Israel in the Old Testament in more of a physical manner. So now spiritually does this happen again. And, and the circumstances surrounding Peter's escape remind us of this. And so if you think about it, on the other side of things, uh, it's, it's apparently, or it could be apparently, pretty random. But if you think about it on the other side of, of the coin, so to speak, or if it happened differently, slowness and leavened bread would indicate work. That Jesus didn't quite finish the work for us, but maybe just started it. It might even indicate God's impotence. But speed in exodusing us out from sin and death by way of Jesus' blood indicates grace and a bypassing of our works, the works of our hands, in the place of God just doing all the heavy lifting for us. After all, Jesus says it is finished on the cross, right? He does not say it is in progress, but it is finished. It is unleavened. It is not leavened, it's not slow, it is with an unleavened kind of spiritual, spiritual state that I am saving you. It is with speed, it is with quickness, it is completely on my shoulders. It is not with slowness or deliberateness or anything that you have to contribute whatsoever to, to it that you are saved, but it is completely by my strength. All right, so lots more to say about the Exodus theme and, and what's happening here. By, by way of Luke's pen. So Luke is not shy about this, but that's what we're seeing. Peter's escape is a picture of ours when we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The other aspect to this that relates is the fact that Peter's chains just fell off by themselves and the iron gate just opened by itself, which would have been a cool thing to experience. Uh, but think about that. If you're being saved and chains just fall off your hands and, and you're walking through an iron gate and it just opens by yourself, what does that suggest? What does that tell you about the event itself? Why do you think it's important? Why did Luke record this at all? What does it mean? 
maybe it helps us to ask, what if the angel had said, take off your chains by yourself with this key, Peter? What if the angel had said that? Or what if he had said, push the iron gate open yourself? You've got to lean into it with your shoulder a bit. You can do it. Or climb over it. Or yell really loudly so someone hears you and they come and open it for you. Or even fight off the guards with your bare hands. What if all of those, or even just one of those things, was a part of the story? If it happened that way, and if this whole thing is a picture of our salvation, and it is, then it could be misconstrued that it's by some kind of physical or moral effort or works of our hands that we're saved, rather than by God's grace alone. Or, this is just as bad, theologically, but believing that our, our works cooperate with Jesus' works to, to get us saved, that's a much more kind of commonly believed in thing, even by Christians, that our works cooperate with Jesus' to be saved. The thing is, with Acts 12, that reading's not allowed. It's precluded. Peter did nothing here. Did the angel say, just believe in yourself, Peter, and you can do anything? Thank God, no. Thank God he didn't say that. It's for our benefit, because then God is more in focus. See, in Christ, chains fall off. They're not taken off by you. They're not taken off by me. There's no key None of that. They fall off by God's powerful grace through Jesus' blood. So in Christ, sins fall off by grace. The doors of salvation just are opened by Jesus' blood without us touching them. We're saved because Acts 12 happened to us spiritually when we believed in Jesus for the first time. So I'm saying that to those of you who are already saved, who are Christians. This is your story. And this is here for the sake of your edification, for your growth, for your happiness. And if you're not a Christian yet, this is what it means to be a Christian. Notice here how Christians aren't special people. They're not strong. They're not intelligent necessarily. They're just looked at by God and favored because of love. That's the only explanation. They're looked at. They're they're inter intervened kind of for. An angel appears. Jesus himself appears and commands the chains of sin to fall off our bodies. That's, that's all it means to be a Christian is to put our faith in that, to believe that, and to leave our works at the door. All right, so that's our story, and it continues to be our story every day. Christians don't graduate from this narrative. There's not, we, don't, we don't start this way, and then you know what? Later on, you actually do open the door yourself. You actually do take off the, the chains around your, your ankles and your hands. You actually do fight off the guards. That's not the Christian narrative. That's never the Christian story. Christ in us, at best, does that. But better to say, he does it for us and through his people. But it's always by grace we're saved. It's always by grace we continue on. It's always by grace that we find victory over sins. It's always by grace that we find joy. It's always by grace that in the end we'll be saved. It's never by being good. It's never by being moral. It's never by climbing the mountain. It's never by ascending the ladder, but rather Christ descending and coming to our rescue just like this by way of this angel.
All right, so let's shift gears a little bit here and look at this uh, divine side, um, which is basically look, picking up another lens or twisting the diamond in the light like we like to say a lot here and seeing this passage from a different angle or with a different lens or kind of a different facet of the, the, the multifaceted diamond that is this passage. So that is this. Peter is a picture of Jesus and specifically his death and resurrection. All right, so some of you might remember uh, in Acts 4, we looked at a similar passage and we talked about how when the apostles were imprisoned, so remember that story in Acts 4 if you were here, all the apostles were imprisoned and, and put, in, put in jail for a time because they, they didn't stop talking about Jesus like they were commanded to. It's a very similar narrative. And when we talked about that, we talked about how their miraculous escape then, like Peter's here, resembled Christ's resurrection, well, his death first, but then his resurrection on a number of fronts. And so to kind of speed this up a bit, the same thing's happening here and actually dialed up a bit because there's more detail and there's more intention of Luke the author and God the ultimate author is trying to connect these dots and draw a line between Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and this one, Peter's figurative death and burial and resurrection here then, in other words, and escape, his exodus in a sense, is meant to evoke memories of, of Christ. So here's what I mean. All right, this is about, um, this is several, how many is this? This is like nine or so. There's more than this, uh, but this is just to, to show you what I mean and to show you what the Bible is getting at and to draw us back and to make us think then more about Jesus than Peter and more about Jesus than us. All right, this is, this is the trajectory. So on both levels, so Jesus is on the left side, Peter on the right, both death and resurrection, so Peter's obviously is figurative or symbolic, Jesus' is, is literal, but both happen on Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which were linked festivals for the Jews. Both deaths are overseen by a Herod. Jesus died between two criminals. Peter lies between two guards. You might think, why is it important that he, he lied between two guards? And why did Luke have to record it that way? Well, this is why. He had to record it because Jesus first experienced it. And the intention is to see the similarities. Jesus' side is pierced. Peter's side is struck. Jesus' tomb is guarded by many soldiers. Peter's prison is guarded by many guards. Angels accompany Jesus' resurrection, just like an angel accompanies Peter's. A woman sees Jesus first, but is not believed by others. Remember that whole narrative in the Passion Narratives? When Jesus rises again, a woman sees him and goes to tell people he's alive, and no one believes her. It's the same in Acts 12. Rhoda hears Peter's voice and runs and tells people, Peter's alive, and they're all, you're insane. It's just his ghost or his angel. All right, so that's actually the next one is Jesus is confused for a ghost later, whereas Peter is confused, oh, it's just his angel, it's just his ghost. And then when they both appear to people, both of them have a similar type of takeaway, which is go and tell others. When they both appear to people, they say, go and tell the brothers, go and tell others what happened, that I, that I actually am alive. All right, so there's a lot more than that, actually. I shouldn't say a lot more. There is more. This is the gist of it, though. And what Luke is doing here, then, is, like I was saying, hearkening us back or pointing us back to the thing that basically serves as the headwaters of the one reading about today, which is the left side of this chart. So when we ask the question, one thing to, like, see these connections, which um, is, like, in a lot of ways, step one to studying your Bible to seeing that the Bible is full of allusions 
to the, the gospel, to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's said explicitly and it's shown implicitly all over the place. The Old Testament is one big shadow of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's one, step one is to see these things. Step two is to ask this question. Why is this important? Why is this necessary to see to understand what the Bible means? To get at meaning, the ultimate interpretational question we ever ask when we open our Bibles is, what does this mean for me? Why is this significant? What is God trying to tell us here? All right, and I have a couple of things. One, on the big picture level, this tells us what the center of Christianity really is. Jesus' death and resurrection weren't a stepping stone to something else. They were the thing, the reason Jesus came. So if it helps, think about this question. What else do you see repeated symbolically in Acts from Jesus' earthly ministry? What else do you see repeated like this symbolically in Acts from Jesus' earthly ministry? And the answer to that is not a lot. Yes, definitely some key things like gospel embodying miracles for sure and his love and generosity expressed in the church. There's definitely a good healthy list there. There's some things without question. But there's no parables spoken after Jesus died on the cross and rose again. The Lord's prayer isn't even repeated as this kind of model prayer for the church to keep. They pray other kinds of prayers that don't compete with that prayer, of course. But the Lord's prayer isn't mentioned. There's no walking on water. We could go on and on and on. So if Jesus' death was a temporary inconvenience that was overcome so that now we could care afresh about those other things or his moralistic teachings, as if those were the main thing, then why in the world is the resurrection being repeated here? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Why is it being gone all in on, again, symbolically? We repeat things that are important, right? We do this all the time. Every day, we repeat things for emphasis. We repeat things that are important. We repeat things that we want our friends or our coworkers or our kids to really understand. We underline it emphatically, right? And that's what's happening here. What's central is being emphasized. What's most important is being emphasized. And the reality is, not everything in Jesus' earthly ministry is repeated in Acts, and that's because not everything Jesus did is created equal. He even says that. He demonstrates that. That there are things that the disciples will do that are better than what he did. In John 14, 12, there are things that the disciples would do later that are more important, that are just better than what he did. And what he's saying by that is to say that after I die and rise again, when that's preached, when that's shared, when that's, de when that's demonstrated, when the gospel actually goes forth, that's better than anything I ever did because I'm just preparing the way for it and making it possible. And so anyway, lots to say about that too, but John 14, 12 is where Jesus kind of hints at that as well and says, when I die and rise and send my spirit, you Christians will do greater things than I ever did because you'll preach the gospel. So what God is saying here in Acts 4 and now 12, in fact, you could bring James back into this in a lot of ways and say, like James died and like Peter was figuratively resurrected, so did Jesus die and rise again. Now by way of his body or his people, 
he's sharing that yet again. And so, so Jesus goes, and Luke and God, the authors, kind of go all in on that and say, look at this, remember it. This is the ongoing center of the faith, worthy of repetition over and over and over again. And so if we get bored with it, we're confronted with the fact that God isn't. That he cares about repeating it. And that it's a song we'll sing forever and ever and ever and ever because it never gets old. So that's the first piece there is when we talk about why is this important, what is the ongoing center? It, it, it gets at that again uh, narratively. The second piece is, um, is what happens right after the, this figurative resurrection? Is The answer is revelation of the resurrection. So people, in other words, it's revealed that that resurrection happened, right? Appearances to people, even to those who disbelieve. So it says with Peter, he went right to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And then in John 20, 19 to 20 about Jesus, it says the same thing. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus was all of a sudden just there. He came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them his scars to prove that it was really him and to show him the ultimate form of his love, that this is how much I love you. This is what the gospel is. My scars are the gospel. And so what this says, and this is really where Acts 12, I think, to kind of um, circle back. This is where Acts 12, in as much as it reminds us of Christ, really starts to preach to us. Because what this says is, Jesus, like Peter, Peter's a picture of it, but Jesus wanted to present himself raised to us after he rose again. His priority after rising was appearing to people. This is what he's like here to his disciples in the first century, and this is what he's like to us as well, even right now in this very room. He's not hiding the difference with Peter is he just kind of keeps on knocking after Rhoda's like, whoa, what's going on? And she runs away because she forgets to open the door. She's so excited. He just kind of keeps on knocking like, hello. But the difference with, with Jesus is he bursts through doors. He passes through walls miraculously to get to people. He loves us so much. And with Jesus then, he not only passes through walls, but the implication is he passes through locked hearts as well. And, and so what, what passages like this kind of invite us to believe is, is, is this informing your view of who Jesus is? If it's a reminder, praise God. That's great. But for those of you that don't have this piece yet to your understanding of who Jesus is, let this be a part of the puzzle. Let this inform you of what he's like. Look at how much he's chasing people down after his resurrection, which means what about the resurrection? It means it's important, right? It's we, people need to know that it happened, and it's for others. It's a, a gift. It's the power of God, but it's also a gift for people that it happened. It's new life. It's new creation. It's hope of a bodily resurrection for ourselves, which means that upstream of that, death must have been, or sins must have been overcome by way of Jesus' death, right? So it's a gift. Jesus wants to show the scars his death and show his glorified body, his resurrection for people who are themselves dead and in need of a resurrection, a new life, a full recreation, a rebirth. And so it's an invitation for us to ask, do I believe that? Do I believe Jesus burst through my locked heart when I wasn't even looking for him? Like he burst into this locked room 
when the disciples weren't even believing he was alive. Is this the type of Jesus you think about when you despair or sin grievously or doubt? Is he still this kind of savior or does he change into some kind of God you need to appease and earn his love back by way of just not sinning for a while after that? Does he change from this into a different kind of like man-made, not real Jesus? Or is he always this kind of pursuer? It's especially important to view him this way when you really, 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 really screw up and really hurt people bad and really think highly of yourself in, in full arrogance. This is especially important and when you worship other gods like yourselves. This is really important to believe that he is still like this to you. He wants you to be saved so much, and to me. And that's the last thing here I'll I'll mention. This is basically kind of a flow of thought from the last point, but a few things on this. With Peter, when they're praying, they thought he was dead, right? Oh, it's just his angel. But But they're in the house praying. And yet, Peter still appears. This is really important to see. They thought he was dead, and yet Peter still appears. It's the same with Jesus. Doubters and faithless ones were approached by him regardless. So so here's the good news. Jesus is involved in helping us to have faith. So think about the disciples in Jesus' case, how when Jesus appeared to them, their faith increased. Remember Thomas who didn't believe it? And he says, unless I like touch the scars, I won't believe you guys. Jesus appeared, kind of honored that in a sense, and said, look, it's me. Thomas' faith went up because Jesus appeared to him. Jesus helped him to have faith, literally. So, in other words, the implications for what we think about when we think about what faith is, when we define faith, like definitionally or linguistically, but also theologically, what is faith? Don't think of God so much as a responder to your perfect faith, but instead as one who helps you to have it in the first place by appearing to you, softening your heart, showing you his scars, then saving you in spite of your imperfect faith. That's what he's like. This whole passage, you guys, everything in it, is meant to relax us. It's not about you. Look at him. Look at what he's done. Not only did he die, but he ran after us and didn't hide after he died and after he rose again. But he says, people need to know, even people behind locked doors, and that wall will not hold me back from people I love. Your sins will not hold Christ back. He's stronger than them. See, he pursued you. He's that kind of savior. It's not you and me who figured out the theological math. Even though we have to intellectually ascribe to something to have faith in the right direction, for sure. That's why we talk about this stuff and and explain it and preach Jesus in in the right way so we have the right kind of life preserver to hold on to in the midst of the ocean. But at the same time, behind the curtains of that, God is orchestrating and softening and pursuing. We can't read the Gospels without seeing that. Do you guys know that after Jesus rose... Not one person finds him. Every time, every single time in the Bible, he appears to others. Isn't that cool? 
There's not, not one instance where people find Jesus around the corner or, oh, he's over there having breakfast, or I think that's Jesus, you know, as they kind of bump shoulders. That never happens. It's always Jesus who finds others and appears to them when they're not really looking for him. What does that tell you theologically about him, his love, his pursuit? Is that your story, or do you think you're an exception? Are you the one person that found him in history? Are you better than the disciples? I mean, maybe, but whatever. doesn't matter. The point is that no one finds him. He, that might look like we do. We, we can use that vocabulary sometimes because it kind of looks like that. That's okay to talk in those terms, but we have to have a category for the pursuit of Jesus so that we're not left with this works-based mentality of even, yeah, I believe Jesus died and rose, but I believe that I have to kind of ascend to it somehow. That's a very commonly held Christian belief, and it's just not true. Not only does the Bible not say that, it doesn't show that in narratives like this. So that whether we're being taught it or receiving it poetically, explicitly or implicitly, prepositionally or narratively, we're seeing it from every angle imaginable that we're saved by grace, not by what we do. So what if this, what if this is actually true? I'll leave you with a couple of questions here. Some of you might be not be Christians, and, and this is the first passage you've ever heard in the Bible. And if that's the case, there's actually a lot of advantages to that. Uh, there, there's a lot of pros. You don't have the baggage that maybe some of us do. If this is the first thing you're reading, uh, then you're, you're seeing a picture of what Christianity really is. There's no commandments here. There's no conditions. There's no laws There's simply Christ saving people by grace. As Christians, if you're not a Christian yet, as Christians, that's what we believe, and that's what we struggle to believe because we're inclined not to believe that and to put ourselves back at the center a lot. But what if God is like this today? What if he's this active, this full of grace? And what if he didn't depend, if the whole thing didn't depend on us at all, but on him? What if it's all about his quick, unleavened, powerful, finished, blood-soaked work for us on the cross? What if it's entirely about that? And the good news is, it actually is. And so it's a call to belief. So let me close and we'll uh, enter into communion here. God, thanks for this passage. Thank you for what it tells us, not just about us as human beings who are Christians or who are not yet, but also uh, it tells us a ton, even more, about you about what the ongoing center is of the faith and what it's not. Uh, Father, thank you for saving us like Peter from death row. Thank you for commanding our destinies, whether it's suffering or comfort. But especially thank you for showing us that this passage is not ultimately about us. It's about Christ, who was, in a sense, uh, the the, the pre-Peter, the one who experienced what Peter did, but on a very physical, more raw, more... Uh, substantive level when he actually died when he actually was crucified when he actually was buried when he actually was pierced in the side when he actually rose again when he actually appeared to people like that's it's actually about you like everything in the bible so thank you that the gospel says that that happened all of that for us god pursue us thank you that you have and i pray please keep pursuing us and 
press truth into us, especially in the days that we're slipping, we're doubting, we're wandering, we're worshiping other things, we're questioning things. God, we need to believe in the Jesus we're seeing kind of by way of Peter in Acts 12 all the more in those times, God. So um, keep us, keep us, as the Bible says, we are kept by Jesus. Not just saved once, but kept. Praise God, that's the case. Kept by, by you. So thank you that this passage gets at that, and um, we pray for the rest of our time in your name. Amen.